0: Hey, everybody. I'm excited to have Phil here. He is the Director of Product Marketing at Brandwatch. But, you know, I'm excited to talk to him about all about behavioral psychology to get more people to try out your product or to make the purchase. How's it going, Phil? How are things with you?
1: Oh, very good. Thank you, Ramil. Very good. Very excited to be on the show. Thank you again for inviting me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you about all this stuff. Before we get started, I know I asked you what your you know, what you do for fun. You said you run, so I'm curious what your favorite running shoes is. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was really, I was wondering what you had asked me when I said that. And it's quite it's kind of a funny question because I've got the cheapest pair of Nikes imaginable. <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. I bought them five years ago for about 15 pounds. It's probably like, you know, $20 in the States. I just bought the cheapest ones and I've never upgraded them. I was having a look at them today. They've got like holes down the side of them. Wow. They're falling apart. But I, I like them and I read um I don't know, some of your listeners may have read it, but Born to Run, which is uh, mm. a good book on barefoot running and the author's very against spending lots of money on Nike shoes. And ever since reading that, I was sort of convinced that I don't need to upgrade. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm running on thin ice with a sort of state of my sneakers. <laughs> good at the
0: moment. Running on thin ice. <laughs> that was a good one. Have you, you know, do you run... Have you run marathons with the shoes? Like, how far do you run with this, <laughs> the shoes?
1: I've done seven half marathons with those shoes now. What? And, the, and one, like, 40K run, but never a marathon. So maybe that's it. Maybe when I do a marathon, that's when they'll fall apart.
0: Mm. <laughs> I think that's the thing people think is that, you know, you need the... I play guitar, so people always think we need. I need the most expensive guitar to sound great or... You know, in your, shoe, in your case, people think, oh, you need the most expensive pair of shoes with the latest technology to run faster or run, <laughs> run further. The reality is it's probably just all like technique and skill, right? <laughs>
1: probably. But the funny thing is, and maybe we'll get into this in the podcast, a lot of the behavior psychology, a lot of the studies into consumer psychology will actually suggest that if you are given... A branded version of a product, you actually do perform a bit better. There's an amazing hmm. study with golfers who were given non branded clubs and Nike branded clubs, and they recorded their session over the course of two days. And those with the Nike branded clubs hit further, even though the golf club was exactly the same as the non branded version. So maybe oh. I'm missing out on something. Maybe I could be running a bit faster <laughs> if I just spend a bit more money. Uh.
0: There's a placebo, like the the effect of like knowing that you have this branded product. That's really fascinating. Now, before we get into uh, behavioral psychology, can you talk a little bit about your role at Brandwatch? What is Brandwatch and what do you do as the director of product marketing?
1: So Brandwatch is a digital consumer intelligence company. What we help our customers do, and we've got some of the biggest brands in the world, use Brandwatch like Unilever. Let me say that again. Some of the biggest brands in the world use Brandwatch, like Unilever, J&J, and some other sort of major, major companies. And we help those brands understand what is said about them online. So what people are tweeting about those brands, what they are writing on blogs, on review sites, on forums, and even what newspaper articles say about them, both in print and behind paywalls. So we really help brands understand the conversation about them online. My role as director of product marketing is a very exciting role because I get to share all of the brilliant developments that our research and development teams are working on, making sure that people internally feel comfortable selling those products and also making sure that the market understands what we're creating and why. In terms of how I fell into the role, well, I went to study at university in a city called Brighton in the UK. And I was just fortunate enough that there was a sort of small startup that town in that city called Bramwatch that were just hiring people straight out of uni. And I joined six or seven years ago now. I've been with the company ever since. Started in a fairly junior marketing position, but really fell in love with the product and would use it in all my spare time to just learn more things about the conversations happening online. And it sort of was natural for me to transition into a product marketing role, seeing as I had such a intense love for that product. And yeah, that's where I've ended up now in product marketing at Brownwatch.
0: Yeah, let's jump in and talk about product marketing. One of the things that I saw your talk, you shared it to me at the Product Marketing Summit is that you said that most product marketers actually don't really understand their customers. I'm curious what you mean by that. Why, Why don't a lot of product marketers, and maybe even generally a lot of marketers actually don't understand their customers really well?
1: The one thing I should say, Ramil, is that on that day, it was like a hot day. There were talks back to back. And I was thinking, God, people are going to be asleep when I get off on stage. So I thought, I've got to say something to wake people up. So I went on stage and I said, I don't think most of you understand your consumers as much as you should use. So I sort of did that partly to wake people up after a long day. Do they wake up? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> it got people looking up from their smartphones, which was nice. But I had some reasoning behind it, some personal reasoning, which was me as a product marketer and some of the companies we worked with definitely were saying they didn't understand their customers well enough. And the more I digged into it, the more I sort of discovered, you know, HBR famously reported that eight out of 10 new product launches fail. You know, 80% of new product launches fail. A study which was released a couple of years ago by Recruiting Marketing Mm. looks at the amount of wasted budget in the marketing department and they found that 25% of marketing dollars are wasted. They get no ROI, not a bit of ROI, but no ROI, you know, for every $10 you spend, that's $2.50 sort of down the drain. So this, all for me was pointing in the direction that we don't understand our consumers as much as we could do. If we deeply understood our consumers, if we deeply understood what they needed, how they made decisions, we wouldn't have so much inefficiency in our field of interest. And my goal of that talk was to help enlighten people to the world of behavior science and consumer psychology, because I think that is the key to understanding why consumers make decisions and to really decrease the amount of efficiency that we have
0: within our field. That totally makes sense. And you're actually starting to go towards it already. Why is behavioral psychology really important to you? Know, really being good at product marketing?
1: Yeah, so as product marketers, our job, our main part of our job, is to convince users and prospects to use or buy our products, right? That's the most important part. Is how can we message and position and build a go-to-market that encourages more people to use or buy it? Products. We are in the industry, we're in the role of convincing consumers to do something, of convincing consumers to make a certain decision. And I think one of the easiest ways to get good at that is to understand how consumers make decisions in the first place, to understand what makes them tick, to understand what gets them engaged. So I'm, I made a personal effort to really try and understand more about this world. And the more I learned, the more I applied to my job, the more successful I got as a marketer. So for example, I would learn about something like the IKEA effect. I'm sure you would have heard of this one before or not, but it's the idea that we find it hard to stop subscribing to a product or to give up a product if we put a lot of effort into building it. So what at Brownwatch, one of the things that we've implemented is when customers are thinking about churning of thinking about moving on. We share heaps of stats about all of the dashboards they've got set up, about all of the projects they're running, about all of the great data they've collected. And that just works as a high-end reminder to make them realize the amount of effort they put into the tool and it actually increases the amount of renewals. And you know, this stuff really works if you can apply it to some of the work you're doing, if you can find studies that seem to resonate. And as long as you test it properly, you can get some really good results. So that's why I think it's important to understand the, the psychology behind product marketing.
0: You gave a really great example there because people think well behavioral psychology is just great for generating sales but you talked about a problem specific for retention so it, like essentially it can affect the whole funnel from acquisition to activation to you know getting people to actually make the purchase to retaining them and maybe even to getting them to refer you to their friends I want to jump into the tactics that you talked about, the different behavioral psychology stuff you talked about in in your talk. One of them was about distinctiveness. And I'm curious what you mean by that, if you can share that to my listeners.
1: Yeah, so distinctiveness is one that the majority of, well, majority, all of your listeners will know. We remember things that are unique. If you're trying Mm. to remember people you went to school (laughs) with and one of the kids at school had a mohawk, you're never going to forget that person because they're (laughs) unique. They stand out. And we intuitively know this as humans, that distinctiveness is great for recall and memory. This was first discovered, not recently, way back in 1933 by someone called mm. Hedwig von Restoroff. She had a very distinctive name, interestingly enough. <laughs> and she gave participants long lists of letters to remember. So A, B, C, D, W, F, that sort of stuff. And then sort of every 15th set of letter, there was a set of numbers. So something a bit distinct. Turns out participants were 30 times more likely to remember those numbers compared to the letters. No big surprise, but potentially big implications for marketers. That was 90 years ago. 90 years later, a great consumer psychologist called Richard Shotton, who wrote a brilliant book called The Choice Factory, sort of did an update on this bit of study, on this analysis. And he would show participants 10 brands from one category, let's say it's the automotive category so you see ford you see chrysler you see land rover you see all these mm-hmm. different brands and within those list of brands he put a brand from a different category one that you know would stand out so from the fast food industry he would chuck burger king in there for example and turns out uh, participants are four times more likely to remember the distinctive brand the one that stood out mm. the burger king in that example and so what i find really interesting about distinctiveness is that there's you know clear reasoning clear science which shows that it works and yet if you look at the majority of companies they don't seem to be applying this effect if we look at football sponsorship in the UK, for example, so the actual sponsors who advertise on the shirts of Premier League football clubs, uh, EPL soccer clubs, they're all gambling firms pretty much. At least 50% of them are gambling firms. In the league below, it's 90%, it's even more. The majority of the cup competitions are sponsored by beverage brands. Even if you look at things like SaaS websites, they will have really similar right. cartoon designs. My favorite one of all time is if you ever look at a watch advert look at where the (laughs) clock is facing on the watch advert. It's always at 10 minutes past 10. We've got this sort of complete, I don't know, desire, need, whatever it is to copy Mm. our competitors and be consistent with what our competitors are doing we find it safe and less risky. And actually, it goes against the science. If these brands made an effort to stand out, to advertise Mm. somewhere where their competitors weren't, to create a SaaS website that was actually quite unique, they could potentially increase their recall and uh, potentially increase their distinctiveness as well, which will hopefully get more people to remember them and engage with them. So that's one of the reasons why I think distinctiveness is such an interesting and, and powerful nudge.
0: That totally makes sense. You 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 mentioned the SAS website. I had a chat with a few copywriters, how yeah, you're right. They all they're all looking the same. Part of the problem, I think, is this concept called like herd mentality, where I heard a story once where four seasons came out once where they're like, Oh, our bed sheets are you know a thousand trade count or whatever that is, and then they heavily advertised that. And all of a sudden, Hilton and and other hotel companies started doing the same thing. Because their competitor is doing it. If the competitor is doing it, they might be doing something right. So let's just copy them. What would be your advice to get away from that herd mentality, especially if you know your brand, your competitors are, are doing something that is new? What do you do?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's not it's not a simple answer at all. There's, mm. there's one which is just awareness. So it's good to make yourself aware of these things. And when your boss right. says, we should try this tactic because competitor X is trying it out, you can have a, a frank discussion about why that might not be a good decision because distinctiveness is powerful and copying competitors won't always work. And you can sort of educate yourself as well. So, you know, if you look at some of the the science and the studies behind this, there are heaps and heaps of examples of where being distinct really does work. You know, a great one that I love is anti-smoking ads in the UK. For 10, 20 years, anti-smoking ads had the exact same message. They talked about the amount, the likelihood you were to die if you smoked, the likelihood you were to get lung cancer, the amount you would harm other people around you. It was classic rational messaging. It's the messaging that pretty much all of us in SaaS and B2B use, right? What are the sort of features, functionality, benefits of your product? What's the rational reason you should buy? What's the rational reason you shouldn't smoke? They did that for years. And they found that recall was just lessening and engagement was lessening and people weren't even taking in these ads anymore because they were becoming so undistinct. And Richard Chatterway gives this example in his book, The Behaviour Business. And he talks about the ad that he helped create, which really stood out, which was really distinct. It was a cigarette with sort of line cut down through the middle so you could sort of see within the cigarette. And instead of there being tar and tobacco, there was a a really quite visceral, ugly looking, fatty artery. <laughs> and it was sort of really stood out and, it, and it looked quite fleshy and, you know, really quite disgusting. And the message underneath was saying, you know, this is what happens to your arteries if you smoke. They get clogged up and they look sort of horrible. And this was a really visceral campaign and it really stood out compared to the traditional messages you were seeing, rather than just saying to people, oh, you know, you're likely to die if you get as you smoke just showing people look what's happened to your arteries when you smoke massively increased engagement and that encouraged that one campaign encouraged 14,000 people wow. to quit which i think was the highest that the, the company that was yeah. working on this campaign ever ever achieved so it really does help to stand out and i think if you want to move away from the herd mentality internally you want to sort of equip yourself with examples like that to share and then just the ability to sort of challenge others internally who say,
0: "Oh, we want to, we want to go with the competitors." You can always try something, try something different. Mm. Another example I can think of, and that's a great example in the SaaS space, is the way that Drift, this convert, conversational tool, does is instead of you know all the SaaS website they're using the illustration like that we just talked about. Instead, they put a lot of faces there, the faces of employees, the faces of their customers, and it's very, very different. And it just helps recall all of that stuff. One of my follow-up questions is in the drive to be distinct, you know, you're trying to be you trying to be different. Your competitors will copy you because they're not they don't know this concept, right? They don't <laughs> know the distinctive concept. So you know, you know, some of them will, you know, copy maybe even word for word, your whole site or your feature or that ad campaign. And there's always this moving target now to be different to, you know, it's a continual process to to be distinctive. Is that something you see like where, you know, to be distinct, it's not like a one time thing. It has to be a continual movement towards how can we, you know, reinventing yourself or, you know, reinventing whatever it is you do or whatever campaign that you have.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really, it's an important point. And it's worth reiterating at this point that we're using the word distinct, not the word different. So mm. the suggestion for marketers is not, let's do something different each quarter mm. because we want to stand out. It's let's build a brand which is distinct in mm. the consumer's mind. So if you as a company start to get real traction, And people start to recall you and people are noticing you because you're using distinct marketing and that's working and that people are recalling you. It's actually important that you probably don't change, that you stick with Mm. that, that. You continue to build marketing and messaging and build associations with this brand you're building. In order to make sure it's it remains in your consumer's mind. It would be a bad decision at that point to just try something different for the hell of it because because that's what distinctiveness is all about. Now it's about building a brand that's distinct and sticking with it. A classic example for UK listeners is sort of EasyJet, where they're a cheap sort of flight operator in Europe, one of the most successful in Europe, and they plastered their aeroplanes with orange paint. So huge orange planes, and it was really distinct um in the in the sort of airports. And it didn't take long for other airlines across the world to stop stopping, copying that colour so there is a Kiwi I think it's an Australian airline which is also the cheap airline that has got the exact same shade of orange there's other airlines that have gone with other sort of neon pink and purple colours and sort of copying that idea but it doesn't mean that EasyJet changed their approach it just means that they were successful they doubled down mm. on it and, and really do own that and when people think of orange they think of EasyJet so I think it's really important that you find a way to be distinct a way to stand out and then stick to it. And if competitors start to copy you, copy you, it's more than likely going to be good for you because it'll just get more people thinking of your brand <laughs> rather than theirs. Uh, it's unlikely you'll ever get to a stage where you have to really worry about it. So, I think that would be the advice I'd give.
0: No, that's a good advice. You're totally right yeah. in, in terms of that. You know, people are copying you. Take it as a compliment, <laughs> right? They're they're actually helping. They're helping point you to. You know, they're helping people make the comparison better. It's like, oh, these two brands look the same. Which one should I go with? Well, obviously you want to go with the original, right? You want to go with the one that started it off. I want to move on to the second concept you talked about in that talk. You talked about anchoring. Can you explain a little bit about what anchoring is and uh, provide a few examples of what anchoring is all about?
1: Absolutely. And anchoring is probably another one that that the majority of your listeners will have heard of. Um, So anchoring is the idea that we are anchored, we are influenced by the initial piece of information that we see. that could be the initial Mm. piece piece of information we see from a brand we're considering to buy or from a person that we meet um, or whatever it might be. And there's a great study from Daniel Kahneman who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. um, And his study sort of revealed the sort of power of anchoring. So he would ask students to spin a wheel. So imagine a ginormous wheel with 100 different numbers on it. And you'd spin that wheel and you would obviously land on a random number, let's say 10 or 82 55, whatever it might be. Daniel would then ask the students a really difficult question. So, a question that they wouldn't know the answer to. For example, how many African countries are in the UN? It's a tough question to answer unless you really knew. And what was really interesting is the guesses from the students were heavily anchored by the initial piece of information they saw, the, You know mm. where they landed on the wheel. So if you had got a low number on the wheel, let's say four or five, you were very likely to make a low guess of around four or five uh, African countries. If you got a high number on the wheels, 80, 90, you were likely to make a high guess. Some people guessed more countries than actually there are in Africa. (laughs) Some people guess around 20 or 30. So what was really interesting about that is you are heavily anchored, even when you know that the two pieces of information are not relevant. So even though you know that the number you get on the wheel isn't relevant to the amount of African countries that are in the UN, you're still anchored by it. And it sort of shows how powerful that nudge is. And it it works in marketing too. So there's a famous study with Snickers ice cream. So Snickers chocolate bar, they also sell ice cream. And they wanted to see if they could increase the amount of ice cream that people bought for their freezer by simply adding a bit of anchoring to their marketing message. So at first they tried a really simple marketing message in supermarkets, which was just buy Snickers ice cream for your freezer. That actually increases the amount of Snickers ice cream people buy. So, well done, pat on your back for marketers out there just saying buy this product, it does work. Um, but then they tailored the campaign by adding a, bit of, adding a bit of anchoring. So they said, buy 18 Snickers for your freezer. Now, 18 is a ridiculous amount. It's way too much. Nobody would buy it. Well, I might, but most people wouldn't buy 18 Snickers for their freezer. However, that message was considerably more effective than the first message simply because it was anchored so it actually increased sales i think by about 80% in the example and both of those examples aren't particularly creative they're not particularly interesting but they do show the power of anchoring whenever you're talking to your consumers either in app or in your marketing or via email wherever it might be you should be aware that they're going to be anchored to a piece of information that you give them and you can use that anchors smart marketers can use that anchor to sort of leverage the power of the nudge and to make their
0: message or their price or their product seem more appealing. That's really fascinating. That's by 18 markets Snickers. That's a good one. <laughs> You talked a little bit about, you know, using this in email in other places. The only time I've heard this used is in pricing pages where, you know, you have multiple pricing. You want to have a super high one and it's like, this is a lofty goal. And then a middle one that's closer to it and which makes more sense than a, a bottom one. Or, you, you know, maybe you can even anchor your price to your competitors. Where like, you know, you get this much for that, uh, for that price with them. But, you know, we provide all of this other stuff with this particular price. How can you use it in other places? Like, you know, like an email you mentioned about, mm. is it just like buy, buy 18, like a high number <laughs> more of our <laughs> products? Or, you know, I'm curious how you see this applied to online businesses.
1: Yeah, it's it's almost overused in pricing. It's it's mm. so apparent that we've become a I bit agree. numb to it. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it is really interesting when companies start to use it in other parts of their marketing. Steve Martin and Joseph Marks, who wrote a book called Messengers, which is all about how people influence us. They did a really fascinating study with a real estate agent in the UK. And what was interesting about real estate agents is that when people wanted to sell their house, they would Mm. pick up the phone and call this real estate agent. That was the main way that they would get their business. They would Google them online, find the phone number, give them a call. So the receptionist who answered the phone had a really important job. They were the first person you would speak to when you call the real estate agents. And Joseph and Steve, they thought, well, this is the initial piece of information that buyers or potential customers will hear. How can we alter and enhance this piece of information to make the real estate agent work more efficiently and optimize their sort of work? So they asked the receptionist to slightly change the language they would use when they pick up the phone. So rather than saying, oh, you want to sell your house? Brilliant. I'll pass you over to Peter. He deals with that. They asked him to say just something slightly different. None of it was false. It was all true. It was just slightly different, slightly more enhanced. So instead, this person would say, brilliant, I'll pass you over to Peter. He's got 15 years experience selling property, and he's perfect for you. Tiny tweak to the message. They then monitored the uh, sort of business that was closed based on whether the receptionist had used the anchored line versus the control. And I think in their calculations, they got something like 20% more inquiries after having the call repeater when they'd used the anchored message and up to 20% more sales. Now that Will have to be proven on repeated studies, but they found something there. There was quite clearly a cause and effect from the anchored message. And what I love about that is that's just a small real estate agent in the UK. But why on earth aren't SaaS companies across the world using this message? You know, that's exactly the same way that customers find out about a SaaS company. They will often give the company a call and arrange a demo. Why are we not tailoring those calls to make sure that we are telling them they're speaking to the right salesperson who has the right level of experience, who is you know, perfect for your industry and has the expertise in your industry? It's a simple, simple nudge that if applied could really benefit you. And it's just a bit different from the typical anchoring we see on pricing pages.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. You're right. I never really thought about that. You know, you don't having the anchor about who you're about to talk to makes you want to actually show up and listen and probably pay attention a little bit more about that. It's great. Thanks for sharing that example. I I never really thought about that. I want to move on to the third psychology thing that you talked about in that talk. You talked about scarcity. You know, it's something that I see with, with streetwear brands like Supreme, where they do a good job of using FOMO or fear of missing out to really increase the demand for the product by controlling their supply I'm curious why why this scarcity works so well for get increasing sales or, you know, building this brand.
1: Yeah, so we we all know about scarcity, right? It's the idea that we like resources that are scarce. It works well because it's an evolutionary trait. You know, there's a lot of value for us as we've evolved to treasure items that were particularly unique and perhaps in short supply and keep those close to us. Even if we knew we wouldn't need them, it was worthwhile us having them just in case. We all know about scarce resources. We all know how it affects us. For me, it keeps me constantly refreshing websites to buy concert tickets the day they go out. Um, Another one where it has a big effect on me is in the UK when a pub's about to close, they ring a bell, which says last orders. And every time I'm like, even if I don't need another beer, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to be able to get one in 10 minutes. Maybe I should go and get one now. That's another classic sort of scarcity nudge that just encourages me to make a purchase. And a lot of people might just think, oh, you know, scarcity, it's an old wives' tale. Like, I understand how it works, but is there actually science that proves it? And there really is. There's a wealth of science behind it. One of my favourites is the very famous cookie jar study, which some of your listeners might have heard of before. But participants, I think in a study where they would go into a cafe, were shown a, well, maybe they didn't go into a cafe. I think it was in a lab. But anyway, they were shown a jar of cookies and... In the first scenario, the jar had, let's say, half a dozen or two dozen, 22 cookies in. it was filled with cookies. Participants were asked to take a cookie, to eat it, to say how much would you pay for that and how much did you enjoy it? In the second scenario, the cookie was exactly the same. The types of people were pretty much identical. And yet in the jar, there were just two cookies. So rather than 22, sort of a full jar of cookies, there were just mm. a couple left over. The participants who tried those cookies, the, the two mm. cookies, the ones where it was sort of a scarce resource, both said that they were going to pay more So they were willing to pay Mm -hmm. 43% more for those cookies. Um, And they also said that they enjoyed it more as well. So they said the enjoyment of eating that cookie was a lot higher. So that is, you know, real science that backs this up. And I think it is one that a lot of marketers are able to apply. Now, you can see it in a lot of the messaging. If you ever go to buy a holiday or buy a flight or book a hotel room, you know, scarcity messages are everywhere. But what I would say to marketers who perhaps don't use these messages as much, perhaps doing B2B SaaS sales or you're a marketing consultant and you wouldn't really use that type of messaging, my suggestion would be to at least try it out. There's an amazing Mm. study, again cited in the Behaviour Business book that I shared earlier, which was hosted and run by KFC. KFC in Australia had a really interesting proposition that they were selling to their customers. They were selling chips for a dollar chips for a dollar. Mm. Go to the Aussie yeah. stores and you can buy chips for a dollar. Not particularly great, but it was a cool offer. And they wanted to see what type of message would be most successful at convincing people to go and buy chips for a dollar. And they used Facebook ads to test out the messages. Now, they didn't test two messages, which is what you and I would do. I mean, they didn't test four messages, which is what you know a pretty in-depth conversion rate marketer would do they tested 90 different messages. They had (laughs) 90 different types of nudges, 90 different behavior psychology uh, approaches they were trialing out, really creative approach, really basic approaches, just wanted to learn what type of message appealed the most. And the incredible thing was the message that appealed the most was a really basic scarcity message. So the message (laughs) was chips for $1 limited to four per customer. (laughs) There was no reason why they had to limit it. In fact, you would almost say conventional marketing wisdom would say, do not limit the amount you can buy because we want them to buy more. But that line of messaging, that scarcity-based message was by far the best in terms of the Facebook stats that it created, it beat 90 other approaches, even Hmm. some really creative approaches. And that would be my push to your listeners. It's really worth trialing it out. If KFC had trialed 90 different messages and found that one works, it's really worth your marketers, marketers listening to this show, to find a way to trial out
0: some form of scarcity message in the comms and the content that they create. That totally makes sense. That's a great example. For limited for quantities <laughs> <laughs> i I want to talk about application for it. How can marketers use this? One of the things that comes to mind could be just saying that you have limited slots for you know that demo that you're that you're talking about or you know what what are your thoughts on examples for you know maybe saAS marketers or non e commerce marketers to use scarcity in their content or their marketing Yes,
1: yeah, I mean it's always dependent on the role in the industry and the mm. person you're talking to and you know I would encourage them to just answer a few questions ask yourself a few questions about your brand and have a think about how you could apply it your application will be much better than sort of what you and I can say Roman. but what's worth always thinking about with scarcity is that you know, there are a number of different ways you can apply it and you can always take inspiration from other industries as well. The core thing is to make your product or service seem scarce. So what Mm. can you put in your messaging to achieve that? You know, if you're creating an event, you should definitely have a timer on early bird tickets. You should definitely have a timer on when tickets run out. You should definitely put limits on the amount of tickets that people can buy. That's for events, but you should do the same for webinars if you're a SaaS business. If you run a SaaS company, you should limit the amount of people who can get access to your beta. For example, Hotjar did a great beta test, also oh, created a fantastic beta group, which was limiting the amount of people who could sign up. It really used scarcity to encourage people to get in the door and to become part of it. They showed how long their waiting list was and all of that sort of stuff. And that encouraged more and more people to sign up. And a lot of people mm. then converted to customers because of that. That's in visa groups in terms of sort of content you create, you can put some sort of limits on the amount of content that people can read for free without being able to fill in their details. You can just use messaging in your sort of email that just suggests that your product is a particularly scarce resource that, you know, only the best companies in the world leverage this type of product. So it is always difficult to think of applications because you know we don't always know the exact way that you're thinking about it. But if I was a marketer in a different company, I'd be asking myself the same questions. How can I make this product or service seem more scarce? What can I do to my messaging to add a bit of scarcity? How can I test that versus the control to see if it actually makes a difference? And also, who else in my organization Can I talk to you about this? Perhaps this will really help my salespeople. Perhaps Mm. this will really help my customer success managers. Perhaps it will really help my support team deal with some of their support logs. That's how I would try and apply it within other companies.
0: That totally makes sense. Yeah, you're right. It really does depend on the context, but having that conversation is so valuable. I want to start wrapping up and ask you this question I love. If you had one or two pieces of advice to marketers, and it could be about behavioral psychology, or it could even be a career, a career advice <laughs> or a life advice, or, you know, and this is the best time to buy to buy beer at the bar. But, you know, what, what would be your one or two pieces of advice to marketers? It's a great question. I think for
1: me, a really important one that... I started thinking about a lot before I created my podcast was the amount I relied on gut instinct. So as a marketer, you have a really important role. Every decision you make will have an output on, you know, how many people buy your product, how many people retain your product. And I found it really interesting that the majority of the decisions we would make as marketers within our team, they weren't based on data. They weren't based on science or studies. They were just based on hunches things that we thought would work. And yes, we occasionally tested these things to see if they did work and we'd report back on them, but it was tough for us to gain a common understanding, of common wisdom behind what marketing works. And what's interesting is if you look at fields where you know, they have a very high level of effectiveness and efficiency. Medicine, doctors, for example, they base right. none of their decisions on gut <laughs> instincts. They based all mm. of their decisions on science. Forbes did a really fascinating study, which asked marketers about the biggest decisions they were making. So should we spend £100,000 on this influencer? Should we go ahead with this campaign? And they found that even those big decisions, the majority of them to over 50% were based on gut instinct, not data, not science. So one of my first pieces of advice would be to just notice the decisions you make within marketing, to notice the team uh, decisions your team makes as well and see how many of them are based on gut instinct and hunches. And try, if you can, to encourage more people to leverage some sort of studies, some science, some data before making those decisions because that will allow you to, to really improve and then I guess the second piece of advice, which goes hand in hand in with that, is that once you're starting to base decisions on more than just your hunch, you should start to test these decisions as well. So you'll notice from real, but it's so important to, when you're trialing out a new piece of messaging, when you're trialing out a new idea, to compare it to the control, to see if it has an effect. Because something that works brilliantly for Snickers ice cream might fail massively for you. You'll only know once you try But once you have some science to trial things out on, and once you have the ability to test, you'll really start to level up as a marketer and you'll move beyond just blindly reinventing the wheel quarter on quarter and actually start to grow and develop your understanding of of what really works.
0: That totally makes sense. I I really do appreciate you sharing those. And you've been talking about your podcast a little bit, but... What's your call to action to my listeners? Like where can people find out about your podcast? Do you want them to follow you on LinkedIn, Twitter? What do you want my listeners to do after this episode?
1: So listeners, if any of the studies I've shared, any of the insights I've talked about were interesting to you, I would encourage you just to go and have a quick look at my podcast. So search for Nudge Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, or go to nudgepodcast.com and you'll find it there. Every two weeks, I interview an expert from the world of behavior science. Now that could be a researcher, it could be a marketing pioneer, it could be a CEO of a company, whatever it might be. And I ask them about how they've leveraged behavior science in their marketing. The podcast is 20 minutes, really easy to listen to, and you'll go away with a bunch of ideas and tips and tactics to try out. In your own marketing team. So you can go and do that. And then if you're interested in sort of following me and keeping up with me, I'm Phil Agnew at LinkedIn or P underscore Agnew at Twitter. So you can follow me there as well.
0: Well, thanks so much for your time, Phil. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Ramil. Thanks for having me on.